The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Interra, Geoscience and Engineering Solutions. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water. By Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference. By the American Waterworks Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. And by Woodard and Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. This is Session 188. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. We have a great show for you today. Patrick Regan, Vice President over at Evoqua Water Technologies, joins us to talk water and its role in the power sector. And he does a magnificent job of it. I'd note uh, that this interview was recorded prior to the Texas power disaster a few weeks back. But the way Patrick explains things, you're going to get a good glimpse behind the curtain of why water was such an integral part of those power issues experienced in Texas. It's also uh, an apropos time to talk water, not just because of the Texas issues, but also because World Water Day is right around the corner and water's relationship with the power sector plays a critical role in our lives, even though it's oftentimes hidden. So uh, you're really going to enjoy this interview with Patrick Regan. But first, and as always, a hearty thank you to our great sponsors. Again, those sponsors include Interra, Xylem, Black & Veatch, the American Waterworks Association, CanDo, and Woodard and & Curran. And I'd like for you to do me a favor, if you could, please, if you work for or with any of the sponsors, thank your boss or your contact at the sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks could go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know that you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. Be greatly appreciated. And of course, it helps others find out about the podcast. Well, now it is on to our feature interview, feature guest, Patrick Regan of Evoqua Water Technology. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Patrick, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could come on. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, David. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. So uh, for those who don't know you, can you provide a little snapshot of who you are, what you do, and, and what your role is in the water sector? You know, really, I, I'll, I'll say that I'm, I'm someone who's grown up in the water industry going on 23 plus years now. But, you know, I, I've, I've worked in the industry from, from, I'll say, starting with an industrial focus back in the late 90s to, I'd say, more recently within Avoqua, Avoqua Water Technologies, um, working quite a bit on the municipal side, but more recently working to, let's say, support our water interest within the power and the mining sector as the um, uh, vertical market leader. All right. Good deal. So um, power generation, I think we've talked on this podcast before about the energy water nexus. And so I think you know, since that kind of is is exactly what the space that you're filling is, could you could you give us a thumbnail on on you know kind of what the state of the U.S. power market is, 
and uh, with a, a particular focus on on how that impacts water. Yeah, no, certainly, right? I, I mean, I think we, we we all are somewhat tuned in to some of the trends within the industry. Um, you know, certainly, I think some of those trends we, we can expect to uh, accelerate, uh, especially with the with the new administration, um, whether it be the you know reversing course on the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord or I'll just say more simply, introducing more science into uh, the decision-making uh, process. Uh, it, it's, it, it, in short, the the country's power source is is in a, uh, a a mode of shifting from more of a carbon-based, certainly more coal-fired power base, to more of a gas base, and, and ultimately to something that's, that looks and feels more like decarbonization, right, with, with more of a pronounced emphasis on renewable energy. So, you know, to put it more in the context of, of water, right, certainly power generation is is very water intensive, right? You, you, the basic process is bringing water in, cleaning it up, bringing that water uh, to a temperature where it, it converts to steam and that steam turns a turbine that, that ultimately is used to produce electricity, right? And, and that's certainly the case in a coal or a gas-fired um, process. And, you know, I, I'd say very much on, on the front of the mines or front of mind for a lot of coal-fired power producers today are some of the regulations that the EPA has, has put out there that, quite honestly, has gone through a few iterations over the last, gosh, I mean... I'd say at least seven years, but it certainly feels like a lot longer than that. <laughs> but the, you know, the, there's regulations that are, are managing and putting requirements around the water that comes out of the process, right? So that might be the water in what they call a, a, a surface impoundment, but it's really, it's an ash pond, right? So you got this ash as a byproduct from burning coal, and that gets put into what looks, you know, they call it a pond, but it looks more like a lake. Um, it's, it's really a pretty significant body of water. And that body of water, in some cases, isn't too bad. In some cases, it's some, there's some pretty hairy stuff in, in that water. I, I certainly wouldn't want to swim in it or fish in it, uh, that, that's for sure. And um, beyond that, the EPA is, is, has had regulations and, and really is ramping up the regulations relative to what they call the FGD wastewater and, and those regulations are referred to as the ELGs, the Effluent Limitations Guidelines. And, you know, as I referenced, that's gone through a few different iterations. Uh, back in 2015, they had, um, you know, put out during the Obama administration a, a set of requirements, basically a new regulation that was, in, in, in some opinions, staggering. And so there was some litigation that came with that, and, and ultimately that landed with a reconsideration of those rules. And, you know, unfortunately for a lot of those coal-fired power producers, it put them in this it kind of this limbo of what, you know, what do I need to prepare for, right? And, and in some cases that preparation could land with the, um, the shuttering of a longstanding coal-fired power plant. It could it could land with the conversion of that coal-fired power plant to a gas-fired power plant, or or something completely different, right? And, and you know a lot of the major producers are, as much as they really are are providing a base load to the power grid, they are 
working diligently to meet those and, and to be compliant, I'll say, with those new regulations. And, and you know, from a water perspective, again, that's a really good story because the the ash ponds are being closed, right? So, so what was, a, a, you know, a, a surface impoundment of some pretty gnarly water is going to be capped and closed. So it's, it's no longer body water. And as they dewater that ash pond, they make sure that it's clean. And, and, and as the regulation requires them to do, it makes sure that not only is that water gone, but they've, they are cleaning up and, and making sure that the, there's no contamination for the groundwater, that any of the water that's discharged through that dewatering process uh, meets some pretty stringent standards. And, you know, those standards are focused on, you know, not just pH criteria and the total suspended solids, but making sure a lot of the heavy metals are, are out of it, right? mercury, selenium, um, arsenic, et cetera. It, you don't have to be a chemist to uh, appreciate that those are things that, though very much naturally occurring at low levels, um, can be quite harmful to not just human health, but the, the overall uh, environment if, if they are allowed to accumulate at, at higher levels. I mean, that's a, that's a great, great introductory to kick us off. Uh, I'd also kind of note that, that, you know, we're recording this, what, like a day, two days after the affordable clean energy rule was struck down by the DC, uh, DC circuit. Uh, so, I mean, I think that that kind of plays into your, uh, you, you know, your, your thought that, that the energy industry is in a period of transition. Uh, speaking of that transition, you've, you've, you've touched on it pretty heavily in terms of coal. Yes. What do you, what do you see, um, see out there for uh, coal and what the regulatory environment's going to look like and how, how that is going to have an impact on, on water in the future? Yeah, you know, it's, Certainly coal and even gas is fairly water intensive. I, I, I would argue that coal is more water intensive than, than a natural gas fired plant. And, you know, in the end, those regulations are, are really forcing, as I mentioned, the, the shift. And that shift might be just shifting the overall power generation to, to different sources or actually shifting that fuel source from coal to gas. Um, and, and that's where I think a lot of gas producers are – trying to become more and more efficient, right? And that, that bar keeps on moving. I, I see that very much as a good thing. But from a water standpoint, what that means is that the, um, let's say the tools utilized to clean that water before it's converted to steam and that steam turns a turbine and, and that produces electricity, it, it's, it's, it's leveraging uh, a higher level of um of, of let's say technology to clean that water, right? What well, we might have just previously used um, an ion exchange technology to remove a particular set of salts, it's getting more into a, a series of different technologies using reverse osmosis to um, uh, EDI technology, electrodeionization uh, to you know still maybe even some kind of an, uh, uh, a resin-based technology as a polishing, right? And, and, and for those who may, let's say, hasn't, haven't grown up within the water space, you know, just, just to kind of uh, distill it down, you know, that, that resin-based technology is not too different than, let's say, what you, you may have, uh, David, in your basement is a water softener that's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bed of beads that the, the 
quote unquote dirty water comes in and they exchange the calcium magnesium hardness for um, something that's, um, let's say, a lot easier on the pipes. Yeah, but as, as, as we look at that, you're really, you know, there's a shift to natural gas and, and that's, that's still going to be there. Natural gas is still going to be a, a, a big source of the U.S. power generation fleet until something dramatically changes in terms of the cost of natural gas. Right. And certainly regulations and even government subsidies are going to continue to encourage this use or let's say this shift all the way to what I would consider decarbonization. So that's, you know, solar farms, that's wind farms, et cetera. But even then, it's you know, again, to keep it in the context of water, you don't think of water when you think of a wind farm. Right. And right. maybe that wind farm is offshore and it's sitting on a body of water. Right. But that's not really what we, you know, what we typically think of in terms of water and power. Um, but the, you know, I, I'd say, you know, first and foremost, the, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. So what do you, what do you do with that power? Right. How, how do we, you know, maintain that as a more reliable power source, which we certainly always need. Um, and, and so that's where you get into this topic of energy storage. And, you know, the energy storage facilities, are, the efficiencies are continuing to improve. But, you know, I think at two different layers, water plays another role, right? Whether it be from a manufacturing standpoint of that battery technology to the maintaining of those, you know, basically these huge infrastructures uh, for the battery storage. You know, the, 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 imagine the heat that's generated as that battery is just housing that, that power, that energy capacity. There's a, a need for high efficiency cooling, which right. in many cases is based on the, the, the using water as a mechanism to transfer that heat away from the batteries. Or what, what other aspects do you think are important for the listener to to understand you know, so, you know, to, to kind of lay out the, the, the landscape to, to, to land it with something that's really kind of slick and, and out there on the horizon, right? We've, we've got coal fire power today and we're, we're getting smarter about what the impact of that coal fire power is not only to the air, but, but certainly to the water, as I've mentioned, but, and the, is that's shifting to natural gas. We're getting more efficient in, in how we use water in that process. And, you know, there's, you know, certainly kind of in the wings is this, this source of, of nuclear power that is, you know, through, let's say, separated water loops. It's not as water intensive. And through that separation, there's a protection, a, a very strong layer of protection to any outside water sources to, you know, but still moving forward kind of down that path to, uh, of decarbonization. There's renewable energy, and, and again, we typically think of wind and solar when we think of renewable energy. But then hanging out there is this other thing called hydrogen power. And that hydrogen power, um, one for the, those who are maybe more intimately familiar with it, has a few different colors to it, right? You may have heard it referred to as, as green hydrogen or blue hydrogen or even pink hydrogen power. And that really is one reflective of where, you know, what the source is to split that hydrogen um, molecule off. And in, in let's say, keeping it again in the context of water, 
where I think there's just an incredible amount of opportunity is where the source of that hydrogen molecule is water, right? The basic chemistry is H2O, right? So as the process enables the splitting or sourcing of that hydrogen from H2O, that hydrogen can then be used as a fuel source to create steam and turn a turbine and kind of still operating on that same basic process that we use in coal today. But as hydrogen is a fuel source, the byproducts of that combustion process for hydrogen is carbon-free. So as you think through that, the hydrogen fuel source still has some things to figure out. Certainly there's a safety consideration with hydrogen as a fuel source. But ultimately the attractive piece of hydrogen as a fuel source in the long term is the abundance of hydrogen in the environment that we could pull from. Certainly, again, as you think of water as a source, but the quality of the emissions coming off of that. So again, paint the broader landscape for power. You've got coal, you've got natural gas, you've got renewable energy. And then ultimately there's this source of hydrogen that will play a bigger role over time. But again, as I think of it, our power infrastructure, just like any good portfolio, is going to be best served as it's diversified. You know, we've talked a lot about just water's place in the power sector. And you've mentioned cleaning it up and things like that. What are the kind of processes to clean that up? Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, I've mentioned it a little bit, but just to kind of tie things together, you know, you've got this opportunity to, quote unquote, clean up the water on the front end, right? And that's really about taking out salts for the most part from that water before it's heated up. And then that steam goes to a turbine. And that's just really, it's a factor of efficiency, right? But more as you kind of point to, there's the back end side of it, which I'd say is most pronounced current state today within the coal-fired power space. And that really is, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a, you know, you think of a lot of the regulations within coal-fired power has been around the air quality. And one of the basic mechanisms that's used to clean that air is to push it through a water scrubber, a wet scrubber. And so, you know, it's not like you've destroyed the mercury or you've destroyed some of those heavy metals. You've simply transferred it from the air to the water. And as that's transferred from the air to the water, now it's a matter of removing it from the water. And so, you know, there's basic processes I would describe. One is being a physical chemical process where, you know, you basically take those heavy metals and different ones, take to it better than others. But you can take those heavy metals out of solution and then drop them out as a solid. And in most cases, when you drop those out as a solid, you're sinking them or dropping them to the bottom of some kind of a vessel. And again, we reference it as a physical chemical process because there's actual physical movement of that from an ion to a solid form where it can drop out. And the chemical part of that reference is really using different chemistries to help facilitate that process. And, you know, there's certainly 
uh, a sensitivity to make sure that we're using the right chemistry. We're not squeezing the balloon and making one problem and creating another one in the process. But it's, it's a lot of times it's using polymeric chemistry. Some, in some cases, it's just using ferric chloride and iron-based chemistry to drop those solids out, at which point we take it to some kind of a press, a, a, a filter press or a belt press. Filter press is probably the most common where those solids are squeezed to reduce the amount of um, uh, water concentration in it. And then from there, you, the, those solids are typically sent to a landfill. Now, the, the more challenging uh, metallurgies, mercury again in, in this category, but certainly selenium is probably uh, at the top of the list for a lot of, a lot of the power producers, takes a little more work. And what, what I would say is kind of interesting there with, with the, to, to keep it interesting for the, for the layperson, um, we use biology to, to break down the selenium, right? And so um, without going into too much of the chemistry, right, there's, there's different speciation of that heavy metal, right? There's selenite, there's selenate, and ultimately the selenite, the, the physical chemical process is very good at dropping that out and removing it the selenate is a little more challenging. And so effectively what, what we use, and in fact, something that Evoqua is, is very good at, certainly very good at through their, their partnership with Frontier Water, is they've got uh, effectively a, we call a bioreactor that is a, you know, there's certainly some, there's some complexity to it and some, some um, specialty to it, I'll say, but it's, it's a box. And in that box is a bed of, of carbon um, of, let's say, charcoal, to keep it simple. But in that, it's basically a media where these bugs grow and they, where they live. And as you put water across it and you, you, you give it the right environment, you give it the right nutrients, those bugs love to convert selenate into the metallic selenium, basically to, to a form where it's no longer an impact to the environment. We can remove it as a solid, as a biosolid from that process. And as we do that, we... Again, we're not destroying it. We're, we're, we're degrading it, let's say, and, and capturing it in such a way that it's no longer going to go out the back end through the effluent of that, um, of that bioreactor. So it's a, I'll, I'll say it's, it's, it's beauty is in its simplicity of sorts in, in how we're leveraging biology and, and nature, if you will, to manage a, a, a pretty difficult heavy metal. And even, again, it's not just selenium. There, there's other components to it, including mercury that, you know, we use on the back end of it, a, um, an ultra-filter membrane as kind of a polishing step to make sure that the, the, the mercury levels are compliant as well. Um, and just to kind of put in context, of going back to the regulations, the mercury levels specifically that are in that EPA regulations, those ELG regulations, are at the part per trillion level, right? So that, I mean, that's not even a drop into an Olympic size swimming pool. So it, it's, it's it, the, the expectations that the EPA is putting on the industry are, um, you know, a matter of opinion, whether or not they're fair, um, they're tight, they're, they're very difficult, but, you know, certainly anyone that is 
playing, fishing, swimming, drinking the water that may at one point in time down the road come in contact with that water. I think everybody's in, in favor of some pretty strict regulations from that standpoint. When you were describing that in the bed of charcoal and, you know, and, and in, in my experience with water utilities, we've used activated charcoal to remove atrazine and things like that. Are, are, is there uh, what what is there a way to use the technology that you're employing uh, uh, and move that over to the drinking water side? Yeah, I mean, certainly. And, and it's even more pronounced on, on the drinking water side. And, and I'll just say one, one point of clarification, too, right? I use charcoal as kind of a, a, a point of reference. And to as, as you talk about the, say, a, typically a GAC application, as we'll call it, or a GAC solution, a, a granular activated carbon, um, there's two basic sources. And, and certainly it's not limited to this, but that carbon source is either coal or it's a coconut shell-based carbon. And so certainly as much as the process that we're trying to remove uh, these heavy metals, ultimately those heavy metals come from coal, we're not using the coal-based GAC in those applications. We're typically using a coconut shell-based um, carbon in those applications. But you know, to that point, that carbon is a, is a great absorbent media. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we think of it certainly in a drinking water application. You know, then as I reference a story with the, or this, this application of a bioreactor, it's just a media for the bugs to live on. But as you referenced, David, the, the application of GAC for drinking water is profound, right? I mean, it's, I've, I've got it, and I imagine you, you may well have it as also in, in your fridge, right, with the, the water filter is typically some kind of a GAC-based um, filter to help make sure that you're cleaning up the water so it doesn't taste bad. And, and certainly there's some uh, benefits in terms of removing other, I'll call it micropollutants, whether that be I mean, PFOS or you know, polyfluorinated compounds or other you know, trihalomethanes, THMs, or other byproducts from the, um, the disinfection process that your local drinking water plant may be doing. Right. Basically, make sure in, in many cases you may think of it as doesn't it doesn't taste and smell like chlorine anymore. Right. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I just changed my uh, uh, refrigerator uh, filter about a week ago. So apropos. Remember to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, you know, it's fascinating that the technology you're employing to clean up water uh, affluent from power plants is, has a, as a second life or a, a potential other other life uh, cleaning up drinking water. What how how do you see you know uh, cleaning up drinking water progressing in the future from from the applications you've talked about today? Yeah, it's a you know certainly I think there's going to be more and more of a application of carbon-based or even resin-based technology, in some, in some cases specialty-based resin technology to remove different constituents from a drinking water source. So, you know, in, in some cases it, it may be, and we see, we see quite a bit of this in California, for it, but certainly not limited to California, but the application of carbon or resin to remove, you know, one, I'll, I'll say this big category of emerging contaminants, but polyfluorinated compounds or PFAS is one of the more headline grabbing 
constituents today, and, and it's very real. Um, whether that be uh, the you know some of the uh, the Hollywood uh, uh, outputs as of, as of late, with talking about what you know what type of constituents may be in that water, what type of PFAS levels may be in that water, um, and, and the the potential for human um, harm or the, you know, health implications of having that, uh, that PFAS in that water. But to, to get back on track from a, from a technology standpoint, carbon and resin are very good at removing a lot of those constituents, right? It's just a matter of doing so cost-effectively. You know, certainly there's, there's, there's a very different approach when human health and public health is 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 at stake uh, which is very very much is when you think of it from drinking water but at the same time there's you know we want to make sure that we're in line with local regulations but then even trying to stay ahead of where those regulations may go and and that's where you know I see even locally in Pennsylvania my local water provider isn't it isn't accountable to any regulations specific to PFAS outside of what the, you know, the World Health Organization may put out there as acceptable limits. They're going above and beyond that, and they're driving transparency, which I think is great, right? But the, the real cost for them, which they're taking on, not because of regulation, but because of the public interest, is the, the, the application of carbon-based technologies, you know, a GAC filter, ion exchange, et cetera, to make sure that that water source is clean. Now, what to, to, to kind of round that out, where I think there's still a very big unmet need, is more than just these emerging contaminants. Is is I'll, I'll say specifically nitrates, and you know, for for those who are close to it, they, they I would expect they would occur. But the the fact is that nitrates are coming from everywhere, from the the stuff you put on your lawn in the spring to keep your grass green to probably at a, a much more massive scale is the, the, you know, basically the fertilizers that farmers are using so they can maximize the output from their crops, right? For, uh, the maximize the output per, per acre foot or per, per acre, I should say. And so what, what that, if you kind of go right to the heart of, of that challenge, kind of looking at it from an ag standpoint, a lot of these communities in Central Valley, California, for example, have really their primary source of drinking water is well water pulling from the aquifer. And that aquifer over many, many decades, if, if not more than that, has been exposed to higher level of nitrates and, and certainly salts as if you factor in kind of the, the stress of um, that those aquifers have undergone whether that be climate-driven water scarcity or excessive draw from the aquifer, you're the, the, through the ag process, nitrates are being introduced, and certainly not only through the ag process, but that's probably, I would argue, is the main source. And that problem is exacerbated because you're reducing the volume of water, so those nitrates are concentrating. And ultimately what that comes down to is Nitrates are in that drinking water, and then the, the level of the nitrates in many of those drinking water sources is much higher than it should be, and, and, and certainly much higher than it should be as I think of it in terms of public health. Um, you know, uh, Blue Tech did a, a really good um, study on this, I want to say it was like two, three years ago, 
and they referenced that, you know, the, the percentage of municipalities that are, let's say, serving less than 500 touch points. So these are really small communities. They're anywhere from, you know, 86 or so percent are, are not compliant, right? So, so basically a very large majority of those small communities don't have safe drinking water. And to me, that's a, you know, to kind of land at a back from a, a, the perspective of technology, there's a big need there. And, you know, one of the exciting things that I, I see the industry doing, and I'll, I'll give nod directly to um, Frontier, though certainly they're not the only ones doing this. There's, there's an opportunity to take that same technology that's used to clean up water from a power plant to drop the nitrates to reduce the nitrates in that drinking water source, right? Now, the challenge is if you think about it from, um, from an application standpoint, you've got this small community, they don't have this big drinking water infrastructure and they're, they're kind of, they're certainly landlocked. And so how, how do I manage that in terms of one cost of the solution? Two is the complexity to operate that system, certainly over the long term. And then three is the, the ability to manage any waste that might come from that process. And so again, go, go back to the specific example of the bioreactor technology. That is something, again, that's using this really the same methodology. Now there's some, some, some detail and kind of tweaks to that that we'll say we can come back to at a later time, but it's taking the nitrates and using the the biology as as a mechanism, basically the, the the piece that's doing all the work, and converting that to nitrogen gas, right? Which is it's fairly safe, and and you know that that makes it the majority of the air or the air that we breathe every day, and so you know as a result, the you know there's still a very minimal level of bio waste that comes from that process, but you know it's it's a box that's you know, the, the team, and again, I know Frontier Water is not the only one doing this, but I know the Frontier Water team intimately is working very hard to keep that box simple from, from not only a cost to deliver the solution, but even more so from the cost to operate that system. So I think there's a, an exciting opportunity in the space where you've got this profound need, especially in these, these more rural communities, it's not limited, but I certainly see it as pronounced. I see it as pronounced in, in states like California that have a need. And here's a solution that is is ready. And, and, and the, the team and other teams are continuing to refine that. And, and I'll say where it's even more exciting is they're working with regulators to help educate them and get them on board. So um, they, they ultimately, a, a municipality won't be impeded to put this type of technology in place because the regulators have seen it, they've tested it and they understand it. And they, they appreciate that it's actually a very good thing in, in the context of public health for that community. Well, that's, that's a great perspective, Patrick. I really appreciate you coming on today. You've been terrific. I've learned a tremendous amount uh, speaking with you. And uh, at this point, I think it, uh, you know, I, I just like to get your your thoughts on what your kind of leave behind message is uh, for the listener. If you know, if you could, if they could leave this interview with one thing, what's it going to be? You know, David, I, I'd say high level, you know, certainly even, 
you know, even in the, the power industry that a lot of people don't think of when they, when they plug their charger into the outlet, the big role that water plays. Um, but it, even where water does have a kind of behind the scenes role within the power industry, the lessons that we've learned and that the technology that we've developed to help um, drive efficiency and compliance within that sector, that industry, is going to transfer to a, a an industry that we very much think of water, and that is ultimately the water that comes out of our tap, right? The water that we drink every day. And I, I'd say, you know, as much as that, there's a great opportunity to transfer technology and lessons learned and best practices from one one industry to another. I, I'd say. Um, Something that's key, and, I, and I'm, I'm really excited, and I'll, I'll, I'll say give accolades to the overall water industry because I, I think it's one of their defining characteristics, is we need collaboration across the board, right? And, and, and that's, that's across the, the value chain, as I think of it, from the municipalities to the regulators to the, the engineering firms that help put those, those plants together to the um, – to the technology providers who certainly are competing to have their clarifier or their bioreactor in the solution. I think the, the, the theme of, uh, of, of our efforts will, will rise all boats, high tides will rise all boats is, is very real within the water sector. And you know, I'll, I'll, I have to give nod whenever I have the opportunity to, to people like George Hawkins with, with his effort with the, the, the Moonshot um, program which is really trying to drive and provide a platform for that collaboration. I, I think to, to put it in a word, uh, David, the, the theme I'd like to leave the team with, the, to the audience with, is around collaboration. And that's across sectors, that's, a, that's across roles within the industry. But we all benefit, and, and as much as water is key to everything we do, whether that be the, the, the charging of our iPhone or the, the, the manufacturing of our iPhone to the actual water that we drink. If, if we don't collaborate and, and, and do so to get smarter and maintain public health, um, we'll, we'll find ourselves in, in troubled waters. Yeah. Those, oh, <laughs> that's okay. That, uh, you know, th those are very, very wise words that you just spoke. So thank you so much for coming on, Patrick. Uh, for those who want to find out more about you, more about Evoqua Frontier Water, where can they go to get that information? Yeah. It, as you would imagine, the, the internet is an incredible thing. Um, <laughs> so certainly you can go to evoqua.com. Uh, you can go to Frontier Waters, uh, uh, watersystems.com. Um, and, and certainly, uh, you, you can, you can find me on, um, on LinkedIn as well. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk water as I fully demonstrated here today. Uh, but you know, I certainly, I would just say I'll guide you to the, the company websites and, um, I think you'll find some, some, at least some pretty good answers to start um, on those uh, platforms. Terrific. Well, again, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time and I uh, hope you have a great rest of the week. Excellent. Thank you. You bet. Bye. Absolutely amazing job by Patrick Regan. Great behind the scenes look at water's role in the power in the power sector and what might be coming down the pike uh, in, in as far as regulations and you know where the power sector is going. So I thought it was really interesting and uh, a lot of valuable insights from Patrick there. Um, and I, I really liked his uh, Patrick's message about cross sector collaboration. 
Uh, very inspiring. Uh, so terrific job, Patrick. Very well done, my friend. Uh, you can check out the show notes for uh, more information on this and the links to the ep- that are mentioned in the episode, whether it's Patrick's LinkedIn page, uh, the Voco site, what have you. Uh, just Google the Water Valleys podcast, click on the first link that comes up. That'll take you to the landing page over at Bluefield Research. Again, Bluefield and uh, the Water Values are separate entities, but we have kind of a joint marketing type of arrangement uh, together where Bluefield gives the Water Values podcast a home on the web. So thanks to the folks at Bluefield as well. Well, please let me know what you liked about the podcast. You can tweet at me using the hashtag water values. And my handle is at DTM one nine nine three. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. And you can sign up for the water values newsletter, which comes to you twice a month uh, at bluefieldresearch.com forward slash podcast dash two. Again, just Google the water values podcast, click the first link, the link that comes up and that'll uh, most likely be our home on the web over at Bluefield. So thank you again for tuning in and a huge, huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, those sponsors of the Water Values podcast include Interra, Xylem, Black & Veatch, the American Waterworks Association, Can Do, and Woodard and & Curran. This show would not be possible without those great companies and organizations uh, expressing their uh, leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. So give them a shout out, especially with World Water Day coming up here on March 22nd. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.